Well, welcome today. Glad to have you joining us. If you're new, my name is Jonathan, and we are in a series in the book of Exodus. And today we're picking up the story in Exodus chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there with me. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, uh, begins this way. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So this story we're going to look at, we're going to look at chapter 5 today, begins with this word, afterward, which raises the question, what happened before this? And if you go back a few verses, if you remember from last week, Moses and Aaron arrived in the land of Egypt. They went to the Israelites and they told them that God had called on them to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and that God was going to go with them and make it happen. And if you remember from last week, they performed the miracles that God had called them to in front of the, the people of Israel and it says that the people of Israel believed and that they worshipped God. And so there was this sort of this beautiful experience among the people of, of Israel uh, where they, they, they believe God is going to do this now. They worship God. And it was out of that experience that Moses and Aaron, now filled with faith and filled with confidence, march down to the palace in, in, of, of Pharaoh. And they show up before Pharaoh and they say, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go. And, uh, and uh, they expected that that's exactly what would happen, but it didn't. Uh, here is Pharaoh's response in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. You know, it turns out Pharaoh's not particularly impressed by this new God of the Hebrew slaves that have, has just shown up and, and is making demands on him because in Egypt, Pharaoh is God. You know, it, there's this phrase at the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. It's Salem uh, Elohim, which literally translated as the image of God. And of course, uh, we read about it in Genesis because it applies to every human being that is born. We are all born in the image of God, which is which is fundamental, really, to uh, uh, Western civilization in many ways, to our understanding of people, and certainly to our understanding of what human rights are all about. And it turns out that in the ancient Near East, it was a radical idea that everyone was born in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean that that phrase wasn't floating around. It was actually quite common in that day, Salem Elohim. But in that day of the ancient Near East, it applied only to one person. It applied to the king. The king alone was in the image of God. In fact, uh, for Pharaoh, uh, he was sort of represented God, uh, uh, the Egyptian gods to the people of, of Egypt. In fact, uh, his name was often called Amun-Re, which literally means in the image of Re. And Re, of course, was the sun god, the god of Egypt. In fact, in many times, uh, or in a number of cases, Pharaoh was called Ramses, which again is this idea of begotten of Re is what it meant. In other words, Pharaoh saw himself, the people saw Pharaoh as a quasi-god, as the image of the gods of Egypt. And therefore, he, as the image of God, had the right to mediate what God, the gods said, and his word was spoken as if it was God himself. So, he was God over Egypt. He was God over the Egyptian way of life, and by extension, over the people of Israel who were under his command. So when Moses and Aaron show up on the scene and saying, hey, Yahweh, the God of Israel, wants you, Pharaoh, the, the, the God of Egypt, to let the Israelite people go. I mean, he, he was not 
impressed. You can imagine that for Pharaoh, those were fighting words because in Egypt, he was God. And he wasn't just about to, to, to move over for some God of the Hebrews. And so what, what's going to happen now, the scene is set for the next couple of chapters, is really going to be a theological argument, a disagreement about who, in fact, is ultimately the true God. Uh, 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 Goran Larson writes this, The critical issue to be settled now is nothing less than who is in charge, who has authority over the people of Israel, and ultimately over the nations and all of creation, the God of Israel or the gods of Egypt, manifest in Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh doesn't know God and isn't interested in submitting to him. Pharaoh really is the, the anti-God. He, he is the God who represents this idea that we are our own gods, that, that we are the masters of our own universe and that only we should have the right to say how it is that we should live. And he's also the God of the age, the, the God of the sort of the culture around us that, that dictates to us how it is that we ought to live. And he, Pharaoh, is not about to move aside and submit suddenly to Yahweh, this God who claims to be the God of all creation. And so what comes next is this battle to decide who is the true God. And it's really a battle for the hearts and minds of the people of, of Israel. And the question in this chapter that we're going to look at today is this, which God? Which God are the people of Israel ultimately going to submit to? Yahweh, the great I am, the God of all creation, or Pharaoh, the anti-God, the God of the ages? And of course, it's still a question for us today. There's still a battle for people's hearts and minds around that. Because you see, everyone worships someone. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a theist if you believe in God or, or an agnostic or an atheist. The fact of the matter is, by nature, we submit ourselves to someone, to some sort of leading person or, 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 or the culture in our life. And whether that person that we make God is ourselves or the culture around us, or whether it's Allah or Buddha or Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The question is this, who are we going to serve? And, and, and beyond that, the question is this, which God is the true God? Which God is worth putting your trust in? And that's the question that the people of Israel are going to have to decide now. Who is worthy of them to submit themselves and to follow? And Pharaoh is not going to be quick to give up, to turn over and say, follow Yahweh. So he's going to put up a serious fight. Here's how, here's how the battle begins. At the end of verse 2, he says this. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then Moses and Aaron said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Pharaoh says, look, I'm not letting you go. No, no way that I'm going to do that. And Moses and Aaron say, look, the God of the Hebrews, that's the same as the God of the Israelites, has met with us and we want to go on a three day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. Now, it sounds like suddenly they're soft-pedaling what they want to do. In fact, it sounds a little bit deceptive that they're now saying, actually, we just want to go for three days. But that's not what's going on here. You have to understand, there's a very different culture. And in that culture, as still in some cases in the world today, the, the way that you have that kind of a negotiation is to speak with suggestive terms and, and gentle terms and, and nuanced terms. But nevertheless, everyone knows exactly what it is you're talking about. And, and we don't do that so much in our culture, but you, there's times where you get that idea. Like, for instance, you're watching TV, you're watching your favorite show, and someone walks into the room with you, sits down on the couch and says, can I have the remote control? 
Now, they're not asking that because they want to look at it and see how shiny it is and, and the buttons on it. What they're really saying is, I want to change channels on you because I don't like this dumb show that you're watching, right? But they say it really nicely. May I have the remote control? And if that's bad enough, I mean, wait till they come into the room and say, hey, have you got any money in your wallet? I mean, you know what's coming, right? That's the same thing that's, that's happening here. Everyone knows exactly what they're talking about. They're asking for a full and permanent departure from e Egypt. And, and then they add this. They say, and, and we want to go <clears throat> so that, uh, he says, uh, lest, uh, lest uh, Yahweh fall on us with pestilence and with a sword. Now, Again, they're talking in this kind of very general, very polite language. They're saying, look, if we don't go, there's a danger that Yahweh will fall on us with pestilence, with plague and death. And by us, they're saying like, Pharaoh, us, like, like you, right? I mean, that's what they're saying. And see, and, and, and in fact, because Pharaoh ultimately doesn't do that, that's exactly what happens. I mean, God comes upon Egypt with, with plagues and ultimately with the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. But what they're communicating here is this about Yahweh. This is the message that they're communicating. He's sovereign over all. He controls life and death, pestilence and sword. He is supreme over all. That's who Yahweh is. Now, Pharaoh hears this. He says, yeah, great. Your God might be sovereign. He might control uh, life and death and how it all happens. He says, but I control your daily life. I control how every minute of your day goes, and I'm about to prove it to you. And, and this is... What he says next, verses four to eight. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are, they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh, in essence, says, maybe your Yahweh is like sovereign over life and death and all that, but I control your everyday life. And, and I have uh, control over how much work you do, uh, whether you get paid, the food you eat, what happens to you here and now. And the question that I'm going to force upon you is which is more important to you? What happens to you today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? Or what's going to happen at the end of your life when your God, Yahweh, controls life and death? This really is the question of faith, isn't it? This is the question that, that still raises itself these days. And that's just when it comes down, I mean, when we get talking about the, what's happening in our daily life and, and here and now versus what happens in the long term. Where are we going to put our trust? Who are we going to put our hope in? Who are you going to serve is really the question that's being asked. In fact, in verse 9, Pharaoh goes on to say this. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now, his statement here is powerful. He, he kind of boils it all down into this statement. He says this, let heavier work be laid on the men. That word work, that word work can be translated in several different ways. In fact, throughout Exodus, it is translated several different ways. It can be translated as work, it can be translated as the word serve, and it can be translated as the word worship. 
In fact, the same exact word is used earlier in Exodus 4.23 when God commands Moses this way. He says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, he says, let my son Israel go that he may serve me. Same word as work. That's the ESV, uh, the version that we typically use here. But the NIV says this, let my son Israel go that he may worship me. Same word. Work, serve, and worship. So here in Exodus 5, verse 9 that we're looking at here, Pharaoh is saying this, let heavier work, let heavier worship be placed upon the people. Increase the demands on them. Why? So that they won't believe the lies of Moses, that there's this God who wants to set them free. You see, because for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh, the value of the people of Israel, the, the value of anyone really is in what they can produce, what they can contribute, what they can can accomplish. That's where their value is. And he wants to keep them so busy producing, accomplishing things, getting things done, working and more working and working. He wants them to worship the work so they don't listen to the the lies of Moses. Now, what are the lies that he's so worried that Moses is is telling them? The so-called lying words is that Yahweh wants to set them free. That Yahweh wants to to lead them out of bondage to Pharaoh. Yahweh is saying to them, you don't have to live your life this way. Yahweh says to them, your value is not found in how much you produce, how much you work, how much you accomplish. Your value is found in the fact that you are made in the image of God. Your value is found in the fact that I chose you and that I love you and that you are my sons and my daughters. See, that, that's, that's the lies that Pharaoh doesn't want the people of Israel to hear because he wants them to focus on their work. And it's still this battle today between Pharaoh, the anti-God, and the promises of Yahweh, the God of all creation. The world around says, you might believe in your sovereign God. That's great. Good for you. Whatever. But what about today and tomorrow and the next day? What about the the real world that you live in every day, the the paycheck and and how you're perceived and the value that you have? You see, the world around says your value is in what you can produce, what you can accomplish, what you can get. And your happiness, your, your, your happiness is based on doing what feels best for you as long as it fits exactly in what we tell you is acceptable for you to do. They still dictate what it is, but you, you can feel happy as long as it's within these parameters. And you can have your little religious stuff on the side, but, but really we don't want you to spend a lot of time on that. We'd rather have you so busy accomplishing more and more and more that you don't listen to the, the lies of Yahweh. And Yahweh, God Almighty says, you don't have to live that way. You, you don't have to live in that kind of bondage. I've come to give you freedom from slavery to sin, which would bring so much damage and brokenness in your life. From freedom from working harder and harder just to prove yourself to yourself and to everyone around you. Freedom from the expectations of the world around you, of Pharaoh upon you, so you can live in the fullness of life. Here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Question is this, who are you going to serve? 
Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Pharaoh or Yahweh? That's the battle that rages in all people's hearts through all ages and sometimes from one day to the next in our own hearts. Is it going to be Pharaoh who tells us one thing or God who offers us another thing? Pharaoh isn't done though. He, 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 goes, he goes on. Here's what happens next, verses 10 to 14. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh tasks, uh, whom Pharaoh taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? It's fascinating to see that this passage that we're looking at today begins in verse 1 with Moses and Aaron coming to Pharaoh and saying, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. But now when we come to verse 10, Pharaoh sends out his people and they say, thus says Pharaoh. Same thing. In other words, Pharaoh was saying, this is what I say because I'm God in your world. And if you don't listen to me, I'm going to make your life difficult. He says, no longer am I going to supply you with straw. You know, straw is like when you, when you grow crops, the, the, the grains are at the top. The straw is the long stalk. And once you cut that off, there's just a little piece at the bottom, which is the stubble. Now, the stalk is usually bundled together to get it out of the way. And so it's very easy to give it over to people who are making bricks. And now Pharaoh says, no more. No one's going to supply you with that. Now the people of Israel, the slaves, after making bricks all day, have to go out late at night and pull individual pieces of stubble out of the ground and clip the ends off of it so that they can get tiny little pieces of straw to make bricks. You see, Pharaoh demands obedience to him by applying pressure to people. That's the way Pharaoh always works. He says, you, you can live different than the way I want you to, but it's going to be more difficult for you. You, you, you. If you don't go with the flow, there's going to be more pressure on your life. If you're not on the right side of history, you're going to be scorned by the people around you. You, you know, if you don't take on the views and the values of the culture around you, man, you're going to be swimming upstream and it's going to be hard in your life. You can live differently. You can, but the fact of the matter is, it, the cost will be high. You see, Pharaoh demands obedience as a result or through pressure. Yahweh, God, through Jesus, on the other hand, invites obedience through love. Now, you know, his demands are also high. I mean, you know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There are definitely costs to choosing to follow Yahweh. But, but, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to worship. And the, and the cross that we're to bear is one that God himself bore in his own flesh. He carried it himself and hung on it and died for our sins. And so instead of pressure, I mean, obedience to one God or the other, but instead of obedience through pressure, the obedience that Yahweh calls us to is an invitation based on love. Pharaoh, on the other hand, applies intense pressure on the Israelites to serve him. And when it gets too much, the people come back to Pharaoh and they beg for mercy. Here's what, what happens in the next verses. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. 
And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. No kidding, they were in trouble. They'd just gone to Pharaoh, and it says they cried out to Pharaoh. The exact same language is used earlier in Exodus when it says the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, they cried out to God. Only God heard their, their, their cries and had compassion upon them and moved to set them free. But when the people cry out to Pharaoh, he doesn't hear them at all. He, he's deaf to their cries. He has no sympathy whatsoever. In fact, he says to them, you're lazy. You're idle. You know what? There is no opportunity for them to, to find relief or there's no compassion. There's no redemption except that they work harder still. I mean, that's what he said. You're lazy. Work harder. Do more. Try harder. Dig deeper. This is what Pharaoh says. It's his response, and he demands it. Why? For his own benefit. Yahweh, Yahweh, on the other hand, offers rest. In fact, he commands rest. You know, after this, when he leads the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, he leads them back to Mount Sinai. And when they arrive back where God first called Moses, when they arrive at Mount Sinai, there he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is a commandment to rest. Here's what he says. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then he says, why? Here's why. He says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Yahweh not only calls his people to rest, he commands them to rest. And notice that he bases this command upon the, the, the rhythms of creation. He said, look, six days I worked and on the seventh day I rest. And therefore, for six days you will work and then you rest. You rest because I rested. But it's interesting to know that there is a second place where God gives the Ten Commandments. It's in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a record of Moses' final sermon before he dies. So it takes place 40 years after the first Ten Commandments were given. And it's a sermon that Moses gives to the people of Israel, the children of the people who were led out of Israel just before they go into the Promised Land. And he repeats the Ten Commandments for them. Only... When he comes to this command about rest, he gives a different reason for why they're to rest. Otherwise, it's almost identical, almost verbatim to the first command. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. But now listen to the reason that he gives for why they should keep the Sabbath. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
Isn't that interesting? In this telling of the, of the fourth commandment, there's no conversation about creation at all. It, the, the command to rest is not based upon the, the rhythm of creation. Here, Sabbath is commanded as an act of defiance against Pharaoh and against his slave masters. At Sinai, it's a way of saying yes to God and his world. But here in Deuteronomy, it's a way of saying no to Pharaoh and his system of pressure upon people. You see, because slaves don't get a Sabbath. So slaves are, are something less than human. They're a commodity that you buy and sell. They only have value when they produce more and more stuff. A slave works all of their life without rest, and then they die. Rest is not an option if you're a slave. Rest is a byproduct of freedom. No freedom, no rest. And yet Yahweh offers rest. Uh, Yahweh says that, that, that your value is not in what you produce, that you need to rest, that rest is important for your soul. In fact, it's an act of defiance against Pharaoh. Pharaoh is that voice in the back of your head that screams, you have to do more. You've got to work more. You've got to accomplish more. You've got to keep on working. But if you follow Yahweh, if he is your God, he says, you're not a slave. The, the, you, you no longer are under that kind of uh, a pressure in your life. There is no quota to have value in your life. You see, Yahweh is not an, a workaholic. He, he's a Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath-giving, Sabbath-commanding God. He's a God who works, but who also rests. See, this is the picture that emerges from this passage about God, Yahweh, and Pharaoh. And, and, and the question is going now to be put to the people of Israel. Who are you going to submit to? Who are you going to choose to be the God that you allow to rule and to reign in your life? And now we're going to see how they respond. In fact, we see it, first of all, in the, in the response of the Israelite uh, slave, uh, sorry, the Israelite uh, yeah, what's, this, what's the word I'm looking for here? We see it in the, the Israelite foreman. He, here's what they say in verse 20. They, the Israelite foreman, met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelite foreman, they experience all of the pressure that Pharaoh puts on their life. They experience the beatings and the hardship and the misery. And in the end, they choose Pharaoh over Yahweh, which is remarkable because it's Pharaoh himself who's put all of this pressure on their life. Pharaoh makes it difficult. Pharaoh requires them to make the same number of bricks without straw. Pharaoh is the one who won't listen to their cries for mercy. And yet they choose Pharaoh. You know, maybe, maybe they were there when Moses told them what Yahweh wanted to do. Maybe they were some of those ones who believed. Maybe they were even part of that worship service that said, we worship Yahweh for what you're going to do. But now when their life gets worse, right here and right now, they choose the one who treats them worse. Even though God promises them freedom, they, they choose that because they hope for relief in the immediate moment. And they can't understand why God wouldn't provide that for them right then. And that's not an uncommon response for people of all stripes when their, significant, when their situation gets significantly worse. I mean, for people who don't believe in God, 
If all of a sudden their situation gets really worse, you know, all of a sudden they become believers in God, but only to blame them. Only say, how could a good God allow this to happen in my life? It's ironic because when their life was good, they didn't believe in God. But when it goes bad, rather than blaming Pharaoh, rather than blaming themselves or or their decision to live in light of the way of the culture around them, suddenly they say, oh, now I blame God. Now I believe in God just so that I can blame him. It happens. It happens more than you would think. It's utterly irrational. But it's not just those who, who don't believe in God. It happens to those who are genuine believers in God as well. It happened to the Israelite foreman. I mean, I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if when Moses met with, those, with, with the people of Israel, if he forgot to mention that God said that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I wonder if Moses thought, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to believe me, so I'm just going to believe, leave that part out of it. Maybe he didn't tell them that this was part of God's plan. Or maybe he did tell them, but they just didn't really listen because they were too busy listening to the big promises. God's going to send us out of Egypt. He's going to free us. And they just didn't hear the part about, I mean, they, Moses said it. They just weren't really listening to the part about hardening Pharaoh's heart. This happens for us too when we ignore the full counsel of God, when we pick and choose which parts of the scripture we pay attention to and which parts we skim over. It's why when we preach, again, we want to preach through the whole word of God, verse by verse, line by line, so we deal not only with the good things, but also with the challenging things that it says. But sometimes, even then, we have a tendency to hear the good and and, and skim over the hard part. We, We hear about salvation and skim over the take up your cross and follow me. We hear about the, you know, finding our life in Christ and skim over the dying to ourself. We, we hear about the hope of eternity and skim over the suffering of the saints. We hear about the love of Christ and skim over the part where it says, you know, if they hate the master, how much more are they going to hate those who follow after the master? And, and, and because of that, all of a sudden when hardship comes in our life, we're shocked, we're stunned. We say, what? The Apostle Peter writes this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This is going to happen. And James writes this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfast have its full effect. that You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, look, it comes So embrace it, allow it to form and to shape you as you follow Christ. And Jesus himself said this, in the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, I promise you, he says, you will have trials and hard times. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Look, if you choose to follow Yahweh, Pharaoh's going to hit back. He's going to hit back hard. Because he's not about to have just give up his reign and his rule in your life. And the question is, when that happens, how are you going to respond? The Israelite uh, uh, foremen say, you know what? Curse you, Moses, for what you're doing in our world. We don't want it. But Moses himself, he stumbles too. Here's Here's how this passage ends in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
You know, Moses was obedient to what God called him to do. His faith was growing. He'd, he'd stepped out. If you were here last week, he, he stepped out tentatively, been obedient to God, and the people believed, and they worshiped God. Everything was going so good. And now he says, okay, God, I'm doing the next thing. I'm going to go see Pharaoh. And now suddenly he gets significant pushback in his life, hard pushback. And now suddenly his whole faith in God begins to get shaky. It begins to crumble. He says this, Lord, Lord, why did you do this evil on these people? Now, Moses understands that Pharaoh is the one who has done this, but Moses also believes in the sovereignty of God. He understands that in the end, God is ultimately responsible for the actions that, that take place here. And so he turns and he says, God, how, how could you do this? And he's forgotten or, or he's ignored the same thing that the Israelite foreman did, that God said to Moses, Clear as day, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, what did Moses think was going to happen? You see how quickly it was that Moses forgot the sovereignty of God. How quickly when things got hard, did, did he forget that God gets to choose who and when and how he's going to fulfill his purposes and his will? How quickly he forgot that it's not up to him to set the speed or the process or ultimately the outcome of what God has done. Moses' job, your job and mine, is simply to be obedient to what God calls us to do. The second question he asks is, God, why did you get me in this mess? I told you at the beginning, I don't want to go here. I don't want to be part of this. Why would you ask me to be obedient? And then when I did, it got worse for the people. You know, his question is really, you know, I wouldn't have signed up for this, God, if I'd have known it was going to be like this. But if you think about that, if God told you everything that was coming, all the hardship that was coming along the way, chances are you say, yeah, God, I'm not interested. I don't want it. But, but, but the call isn't for us to know everything that is coming our way. The, the call on our lives is to trust God to trust his character without knowing all things that are coming. Because following Pharaoh, as we've seen, comes with a lot of its problems too. And then Moses' third question is probably the biggest one. I mean, he acknowledges that God is sovereign, even though he doesn't necessarily like how God is doing it. He, he acknowledges that he doesn't know all of the things that are coming his way. But, but this is his third question. He says this, Since I spoke to Pharaoh, things have gotten worse, and you have done nothing. It's got worse and you've done nothing. And really, it's a question about the timing of God. God, I've been obedient to you, and now I expected that you would do something right now. Things are worse, and I want you to do something to fix it now. The, the issue is growing rapidly bad. I want you to fix it now. God, if you want me to put your, my trust in you, you want to prove that you are worthy of my trust, I need you to fix it now. But God's timing is never has never been our timing. God's timing has always been his perfect timing. And it's often, almost always longer than we think it should be. I mean, he calls a man Abraham. He says, I will make you the father of a great nation through whom all the world will be blessed. And then he waits till he's 99 years old to give him a son. And yet, through that son came a nation through whom the whole world has been blessed. He says, I will give you a land, this land that you put your foot on. And yet it's not till 500 years later through the people of, you know, through what's happening right now, through the Exodus, that the people of Israel take hold of the land. But when they come to it, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And to Abraham's great-grandson, I mean, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers. And he spends years languishing as a slave in Egypt and later years in prison in Egypt. So that in the end, God can do what only God can do and move him in a way that would be impossible had he not gone through that to become the prime minister of Egypt and to save not only the people of Egypt, but to save his own family from famine. And then there's Jesus himself. Jesus came and wasn't open with, welcomed with open arms, but met with incredible opposition along the way. And his own disciples said, Lord, is now the time when you're going to set up the kingdom? Is now the time when you're going to put out your throne and rule over this earth? And Jesus said, no, no, now is not the time. I've come to give my life. And instead he goes to the cross and dies. And in the millennia since, in the 2,000 plus years since, hundreds and millions and hundreds of millions of people from every language and tribe and tongue and nation have given their life to follow Jesus. God's timing, God's ways lead to something much greater than if he had just acted in the now. God's slowness to act in history, his slowness to act in your situation, in your life is not a sign of his his inability or his unwillingness, but rather it's a sign that he is accomplishing something much greater. But he's taking his time to accomplish it in his way. We just have to wait on his timing. It's fascinating to note that the last words that Pharaoh says to the Israelite foreman before he sends them out, Exodus 5, 18, he says this again to them. He says, go now and work. Go and work is the command that he gives to the Israelite foreman. Now, we know already that that word work also means worship. Go and worship me is his command. But it's fascinating to know that it's not the last time that Pharaoh says those exact words. He's going to say them again a number of chapters from now after Yahweh has made it utterly clear who the real God is. After Yahweh has shown his majesty and his might and his splendor and his utter authority over every single God of the Egyptians, over every part of the Egyptians' life and ultimately over Pharaoh himself, now Pharaoh is going to say Again, to the people of Israel, go and worship. But now he's going to say, go and worship Yahweh. In the end, even Pharaoh will come to acknowledge that Yahweh is the God worthy of worship. Who are you going to serve? Yahweh? I mean, Yahweh is the God that you cannot see. But he is sovereign over all, over all of life, including over our daily life. And he is the God whose value, he places value in your life, not based on how much you produce, but rather on the fact that you are his son or his daughter and he loves you deeply. He's a God who invites you to obedience by setting the example of love in his own son. He's the God who has compassion on you when you cry out and who offers rest for your soul and rest from the pressures of the world to always produce more. Is that who you're going to serve? Or is it Pharaoh? Pharaoh? the one who seems to have control over your daily life, who finds value in you based solely on what it is that you can produce, how well you can perform, the the, the one who, who demands obedience by applying pressure in your life, the one who, when you find yourself in a desperate place, is deaf to your cries and only turns around and says, your bed, you made it, you lie in it. If you want to get out of it, you just try harder, work harder, do more. I mean, who is it you're going to serve? It seems so obvious when you put it that way. Obviously, Yahweh. 
But it's not so obvious, is it? Because at least it's not so obvious, it seems to us. Because when you look around, you can see the power of Pharaoh everywhere. You know, I had the chance to, to go to Egypt once. And uh, one day, me and a friend had the opportunity to go with a guide to the pyramids. And I tell you, they are awe-inspiring. They, they are incredible. They are amazing. They are, without, you know, without question, one of the, probably the greatest of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, you just stand there and look at these things and are in awe of the, of the power of Egypt in that day. And then our guide, who was an Egyptologist, he knew all about the history of Egypt. He turned and he said, those pyramids were there a thousand years before Moses came on the scene. A thousand years they stood there as a testament to the power and the glory and the might of Egypt. And when Moses gets there, they're standing there, and he sees not only that, but the statues to Pharaoh and the palaces and the gold and the armies that answer to him and the pomp and the ceremony. Pharaoh has this ability to project this image of his incredible might. And the God of all creation, Yahweh, is invisible to us, at least to the naked eye. And Pharaoh says, look, if you're going to choose Yahweh, there's going to be a cost to you. It's going to be immediate and, and it's going to be costly. And so even though Yahweh is definitely the better choice, our temptation is to go with Pharaoh, to seek the immediate relief, even though the long-term benefits is freedom, and to say the immediate relief seems more worthwhile to me than the freedom that comes from God. And the question is, who are you going to serve? You know, if you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a follower of God, a follower of Jesus, the question you need to wrestle with is this. What is it that your God demands of you? And you say, well, I don't really have a God. No, 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 no. There's someone, if, even if it's yourself in your life, have you ever stopped to say, what is it that they demand of you? Because they demand something of you. And then to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Not just in the short term. Short term is the easy relief. The question is in the long term. What is it they demand of you? And you know, for those of, those of us who would say that we are followers of God, followers of Jesus, the question is this, are we really living in light of what Yahweh offers? Are we really living in light of the freedom and the, and the hope that comes in knowing Him and in following Him? Or do we really experiencing the rest that He offers to us? Because that comes at a cost too. Yahweh, God, it doesn't move at the speed we want Him to. His plans are higher and better, and it generally takes longer. And therefore, it requires of us a long obedience in the same direction. An obedience that costs us. And the culture around us does not, will not reward you for that obedience. And so the temptation, the temptation is to give lip service to Yahweh, to God. But in the end, to live as functional slaves to Pharaoh. The call today, the call today is to choose Yahweh. The call today is to take the long view. You know, the story doesn't end here for the people of Israel unless they choose to go back and submit to Pharaoh. Then it ends. But if they, if they go with Yahweh, if they go with God, the story carries on and it leads to freedom. The call today, the invitation today is to, is to put your trust in him, to remain obedient to him regardless of the costs, to, to serve him and to worship Yahweh. In the end, he is the only true God worthy of your praise and your worship. I want to invite us to end our time by sharing communion together. Because the fact of the matter is communion is a celebration of the covenant that we have with God.
with Yahweh, the, the God who offers us rest, the God who finds such value in us because we're in his image. He has bound himself to us. He has sworn to, to stay with us through none other than the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. So as we, as we share communion together, we proclaim again that we're in this kind of covenant relationship with God. And we celebrate it. And we commit again to walk in light of that covenant relationship. And so I want to invite you, if you're at home, which I'm sure you are as you're looking at this or wherever you are, if you want to share communion, to grab some elements, some bread of some sort and some juice, typically wine or grape juice or, or something that would represent the blood of Jesus. And we want to share communion together. And, and, and communion is, is something that is for those who have that kind of a, a, a relationship with God. So if you're... If you're just checking this out, you're like, I'm not sure that I put my life into Jesus' hands. I'm not sure I believe in Yahweh God. That's okay. Just sit back, relax. But, but if you're like, no, no, I give my life to Jesus, then I want you to participate because you're saying, again, I'm in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, him and me, no matter what the cost, no matter what is involved because of what Jesus has done for us. So I want to invite you to take the bread. I have it here. I want to invite you to take the bread and I want to invite you to hold it in your hands. And as you do, I want to invite you to remember again the price that God paid to be in a covenant relationship with us. I want to remind you that God is a God who loves you so deeply that instead of demanding your obedience through all kinds of pressure, He invites your obedience through love through sacrificing for you. And I want to invite you, if there's sin in your life, if you've run against God, if you haven't been following God the way you should, take a moment now and to confess your sins and to make it right with God. And then we're going to share the bread together. The Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after he broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat, let's eat the bread together. Then I want to ask you to take the cup. Whatever it is that represents for you the blood of, of Christ, and I want to ask you to hold that in your hand. I want, to, I want to invite you again to celebrate that he would enter into a covenant relationship with us, that he would give his life for us. I mean, if you think about how big and powerful and majestic God is, it is a stunning thing that he would do this. And so I want to take you to take a moment and to thank him and to worship him and to honor him for what he has done. So let's do that, and then we'll take the cup together. The Bible tells us that after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it whenever you do in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. Let me pray for us. God Almighty, Yahweh, 
God of all creation, the one to whom we can address as Father. God, we come to you this day, and God, we're reminded again, we live in a world where there's such pressure on us to live in light of the demands of Pharaoh, in light of the demands of the world around us, in light of this pressure. There's a cost to, to live for you, God, and yet it is so worthy of it. In fact, the cost is much less than the cost of, of giving in to the demands of the world. And so, Father, where we haven't done that, would you forgive us? God, where we need to, to commit again to follow you in a particular area of our life, would we be faithful to do that? Would you grant us the courage and the strength to, to, to do what you call us to do? And Father, would you help us as we have a long obedience in the same direction, as we're faithful to give our lives to the one who truly is God of all creation. We thank you. We thank you for choosing us, for working in our life, for drawing us to you. And we give ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.